Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 10th of July, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border. We've also got Mark Anderson speaking to us from Chicago, and we're very pleased to have a guest today, Dr. Bruce Scott. Well, let's kick off straight away with the BBC debacle um, apparently an upset family. Well, according to the BBC's headline here, family upset with BBC's response to presenter photo claims. Now, the basis of the story, as I understand it, is a uh, senior BBC uh, presenter uh, was grooming a youngster, providing them with money, which ultimately was spent on drugs. And this is so that uh, the BBC person could obtain lewd photographs. But let's um, let's go straight to the BBC and hear them describe events in their own words. So a few key developments today. Firstly, the unnamed male presenter has now been suspended by the BBC. Secondly, that the police have been contacted by the BBC, though the police say that no formal allegation has been made yet. Also, we've seen the front page of the Sun newspaper, which is the story they originally reported the story. They're saying that this unnamed presenter made a panicked phone call to the young person involved, saying, what have you done? and tried to get this young person to tell their mum to stop this investigation. The family of this young person have also told The Sun newspaper they're very upset with the BBC statement today, saying that the BBC at no point after they made this initial complaint in May contacted them for a proper interview. Now, the Director General, Tim Davey of the BBC, said today that when the initial complaint was made in May, the BBC's investigation team began looking into it, and it was only last Thursday that they received new information that was revealed to them that was different to the original allegations. And Tim Davey also said that the BBC are now in contact with the family of this young person. Well, there we are. Um, David, let's bring you in on this. Uh, what, what's your take on what the BBC had to say? Well, it's very strange that the, that the police are playing such a minor role in this. Does this, in, does this indicate that it was technically not illegal, just morally reprehensible, what's been going on here? Um, and uh, the BBC, other times during the broadcast, are telling us there's no such thing as morally reprehensible, that everything's equal and all things are relative. Um, so there's, this, there's, a, there's a confusion about, about the position here. It's all contradictory. Uh, this is an organisation with an Eric Gill statue on the front of the building is um, just another another piece of evidence that they don't have any moral compass. Yeah, this is the key part of it, isn't it? It's always uh, confusing. We didn't quite understand it. A report to us was made back in May, but it wasn't until recently we, the BBC, started to understand that something was wrong. But I'll just say in the article that went with that video clip, the BBC was saying, if I remember correctly, that they would be talking to the police later today. So perhaps something's going to happen on that. But it was all confused in the beginning. The BBC didn't really know what was happening. And they believe that the family may be upset as a result of their failure to act. But um, 
Let's bring in the Home Secretary, uh, sorry, the Justice Secretary here, Alex Chalk, uh, because he was also posted up by the BBC to comment on matters. Well, I think any employer will inevitably, if, if allegations are made, will want to conduct an internal investigation. The important point is if those allegations potentially stray into criminal territory, then of course it's not entirely a matter for the BBC, it's, in, it's a matter for the authorities. And that's why in the fullness of time it'll be important to establish what did the BBC know and when. Because if that threshold has been crossed, you would expect them not simply to say this is a matter for us to police ourselves, but this is a matter to refer to the independent investigator. So it turns on the facts, it turns on the detail, and in the fullness of time, I think there is going to need to be some clarity as to who knew what and when. So that was a, a pretty smooth statement. Um, we need to clarify everything. David, I'm just going to say to you again, it's remarkable how this is developing, isn't it? That uh, the accusations are pretty strong from the outset. Not only were those photos required by the individual, money was changing hands. That was ultimately spent on drugs. But at the moment, it's all being presented with a ultra smooth calmness. So, you know, relax. Let's just see what the facts are. And the, and the facts, as I understand it, are there are bank statements. Right? I mean, there's, there's hard evidence. It's not, it's not one person says one thing, another person says another. There's, there, there's an audit trail in this particular case. Um, I'm confused. As some, I'm perplexed as to why, if the BBC knew about this since May, we're still at a point where they can't name who the person is. Right? This seems to be having a very destabilising effect on the whole organisation because we've seen on social media, TV personality after TV personality put in the frame for this and having to come out and say, this is not me, um, and having their reputations, at least temporarily, hauled through the mud uh, in, in, in the process. Um, this seems to be a very slow response to BBC in terms of how they're managing the situation. Very poor indeed. Indeed. Well, I'll just add in here that uh, one of the concerns Mike Robinson had is that uh, we're seeing quite a substantial backlash, we might say quite rightly, from some of the people who've been named on social media and say nothing to do with us. Uh, we've got uh, Ryland Clark, Gary Lineker, Nikki Campbell, Jeremy Vine, John Kay. They are all saying uh, we've had a really distressing weekend. This matter is nothing to do with us. Um, but of course, does this take us towards ramping up support for the online harms bill, which of course is going to uh, mean some draconian censorship for all of us? And I know Mike Robinson has been following that one uh, closely. So some of those individuals talking about malicious communication uh, on social media and the need to speak to their lawyers about defamation. So we'll watch this one develop. Meanwhile, let's go on to Scotland and the subject of uh, drugs. What's been happening north of the border? Yes, the Scottish government have brought out a white paper. Uh, it's titled A Caring, Compassionate and Human Rights Informed Drug Policy for Scotland. Right? And it outlines what a progressive, this word means fascist, more on that in a minute, evidence-based, right? we're, we're, we're doing well on buzzwords, drugs policy would look like, uh, with public health and the reduction of harm as its underlying principles. Now, this document, which you see there, um, it, it highlights the severity of the situation. Now, remember in Scotland, uh, drug deaths are running at three and a half times the level they are in England and Wales, with no explanation as to why. 
Um, and, um, and drug use disorders are shown in this report as being basically the third leading cause of death in Scotland. So that's how bad the situation is. Uh, the document itself uh, relies hugely on United Nations policy documents. Nothing comes from the Scottish government. Very little comes from the British government anymore. It all comes from international bodies. In this case, uh, Volker Turk, UN High Commission on Human Rights, 66 UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs, who said um, we must stop the so-called war on drugs. Instead, let us focus on transformative change, crafting drugs policies which are based on evidence, put human rights at the centre, and which are gender sensitive, whatever that means, and which ultimately improve the lives of millions of people affected. So that is the UN setting Scottish drug policy. Um, uh, and then this document, the Scottish government document, refers to a whole plethora of other documents, some from the Scottish government, many from international bodies, including the Global Commission on Drugs Policy. Uh, their report, Time to End Prohibition. We see this here. We see the, the, many of the people involved. If you're uh, eagle-eyed, you'll spot that Richard Branson was part of that particular organization. Um, in their recipe for success, a new decade to dismantle prohibition, uh, they talk about the 2018 report, uh, Regulation, the Responsible Control of Drugs. The Global Commission proposed a regulation model, a system of rules for governing the production, supply, and use of drugs. Regulation brings state control into a market sphere where there was none. It establishes a clearly defined role for enforcement agencies and policing compliance in any new regulatory framework. So what we're talking is not to do anything about ending drugs. This is about state control of drug addiction. Uh, this is the fascist model, nominally private enterprise, but actually under state direction. Uh, so when I said it's progressive equals fascist, I, I wasn't kidding. Um, and this same report produces a graph, a, a chart, a, a illustration that's, that's replicated in the Scottish Government report. And this shows that in an unregulated criminal market under prohibition, you have high level of harm. In an, an unregulated legal market, you have high levels of harm. But somewhere in the middle, you minimise harm. Now, I would point out, this is, the, this is the core ideology. This is the core diagram behind the entire idea. It's just made up. There is no evidence for this. It's wishful thinking. Um, it also refers, the Scottish report also refers a lot to Portugal uh, and the success of the Portuguese model. Uh, Washington Post put out a report uh, on the 7th of July um, uh, raising concerns. Is once hailed for decriminalising drugs, Portugal is now having doubts. It's talking about um, the huge spike in drug use that they're having. Um, in one neighbourhood, it says state-issued paraphernalia um, um, syringe caps, pack, packets of citric acid for diluting heroin, litter sidewalks outside an elementary school. Uh, they also report that overdose rates have hit a 12-year high. Uh, uh, crime, including robbery in public places, has spiked 14%, 21 to 22, and police blame uh, this partly on the increase in drug use. So Portugal, held up to be the model, doesn't seem to be all that good. Um, we can uh, bring in Bruce Scott at this point. Uh, Bruce, what else do you think the Scottish Government report is missing? Uh, well, it's a completely uh, unjoined uh, flow of thinking because it doesn't mention, because Scotland is a, a country of dependence. Uh, the, the, the Scottish Government ha have a, a short, life, short life working group on prescription medicine dependence and withdrawal. They've got a 
that had a consultation and draft recommendations because the, the, this population of Scotland is also hooked on benzodiazepines, Z drugs, which like, include sleeping tablets and, and uh, similar, similar effects to benzodiazepines, gabapentin and pregabalin, and opioids and antidepressants. And around about one in three of the population have received a, a prescription from one of the five classes of these drugs. And about one in five of the population is on antidepressants. Now, of course, in, in there's, a, there's a big black market for a lot of these uh, drugs that people are dying from, the gabapentins and, and the pregabalin and the benzodiazepines. And I spoke to someone who deals with the, uh, these, these prescriptions legally within, within the, the National Health Service, and they don't know what happens to these drugs. And, of course, it flows into the black market, and these contribute to the drugs' deaths. Uh, so that's one thing they haven't addressed. The other thing they're not addressing is why are people hooked on antidepressants? Why are people take, you know, taking benzodiazepines? Uh, the, you know, the Malaysian society... Uh, especially in the last three years, the COVID-19 restrictions, the net zero uh, blooming on the horizon, uh, this the PSYOP where we've been deliberately frightened and, and fearful, uh, the World Economic Forum drive uh, for artificial intelligence and uh, total control. And of course, Harari, Yuval Harari comes out with, well, what have we got to do all with these useful eaters? given computer games and drugs. It seems like a manifesto to keep us on drugs. Well, this this is right. I mean, we, we've seen this uh, described in, in documents. Um, just looking at how to destroy a nation, drug use has, has cropped up, a uh, point you were making to me earlier. Um, was this in uh, Richard Storey's uh, book on the EU? Is that correct? Uh, oh, yeah, yes. Uh, the, I had a, a look at this uh, Christopher Story's book, The European Union Collective, Enemy of Its Member States, Studying Russian and German Strategy, uh, you know, a, a global communistic totalitarianism. And of course, in the, in the scheme of uh, destabilization of nations, individual nations, uh, drug addiction is a, is a key aspect to, to, to uh, create chaos in society. Uh, and it seems like uh, the uh, the kind of the very person-centered, drug-centered uh, approach that you know under the term of harm reduction. In uh, dr drug drugs, user-centered uh, uh, treatment kind of ideas for for uh, decriminalisation of drugs, it will 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 perpetrate. Uh, continued addiction and drug drug use in society, especially because this report, again, it's not joined up. It doesn't address the psycho-spiritual aspects of hedonism, of drug taking. It doesn't address the sociological, uh, you know, the cultural aspects of why people are taking drugs. Just the top of my mind, it reminded me of what the psychologist Mathias Desmet talked about has talked about in his book and, and various things was uh, there, you know, the real Malaysian society. I think he was correct on that point that there's a real Malaysian society where people lack meaning and purpose, and uh, to to kind of legalize it or de or de 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 legalize drug 
use. Uh, you know, and as, as, a, as a sort of way of human, it's a human right for someone to take take drugs and we should help them and be compassionate and drug centre uh, is actually counterproductive because as the great Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Solzhenitsyn talks about, he talks about how this the letter of the law, so to speak, is 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 futile because it doesn't address responsibility or, or people's willpower or, uh, you know, sense of moral kind of courage. And uh, societies, he believes, when it's when these things are, are absent, it, you know, it does lead into chaos. Yes, and and we're not seeing anything from Scottish government or any other uh, UK government uh, talking about meaning and purpose in people's lives, and uh, that is the problem. Uh, Bruce, thank you very much for that. More on this in extra time. Okay, thank thank you for that, David, and thank you to Dr. Bruce Scott. He will be joining us for extra time, so if you're a member of UK Column, uh, we'll be able to discuss some of this more. Meanwhile, let's uh, bring in Mark Anderson. Um, Mark, uh, what have you got to tell us about the Fed? Uh, more Fed shenanigans and half-truths and oftentimes lies. Hopefully I'm coming through clearly. I'm at a hotel somewhere in the vast state of Illinois. Uh, on my way to Michigan for my annual sojourn there. Yeah, this uh, first slide up, we see the economic hero, our savior of all, Fed Chair Jerome Powell, warns that to cool inflation, at least two more interest rate increases are probably coming. And the Fed is very slow, I might add, to calculate or acknowledge how much damage these interest rate hikes can eventually do. One of the big problems is that they know that the outcome and effects of the interest rate hikes take a while to be to be uh, ascertained. And then they plan on making more of them. And the question becomes, will they even know the effects of the earlier ones before they make more rate increases? And rate increases sometimes are themselves inflationary and do not fight inflation because there's cost push inflation where the interest rates are just another cost of doing business passed on to the end consumer. But anyway, going to the next slide, we can sort of do a bullet point uh, presentation on this. Fed, Fed Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said at least two, two rate hikes increases. Interest rate hikes are likely necessary this year to bring the inflation rate down to the central bank's 2% target, the much ballyhooed 2% target and that acting at consecutive policy meetings isn't off the table. A strong majority of committee participants, that's the open market committee that meets quasi-secretly, expect that it will be appropriate to raise interest rates two or more times by the end of 2023, uh, and that inflation pressures continue to run high, and the process of getting inflation back down to 2% is a long way to go. There we, we see more of this notion that inflation is a disembodied force that the Fed has no, uh, has no hand in causing. And we know that the Fed either causes it by at some intervals printing too much money and at other intervals uh, raising rates at least excessively to where those become additional costs passed on through the business sector onto the end consumer. So the Fed absolutely causes inflation and keeps acting as if it's a disembodied force that they have no connection to. Um, anyway, moving on, uh, we can kind of cherry pick this a little bit. A strong majority of committee, uh, let me see, let's go down a little bit. Uh, 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 in remarks to a conference in Madrid at the Bank of Spain, 
Jerome Powell repeated comments he's made in the two weeks since the Fed's last meeting, where policymakers held rates steady for the first time since early 2022. Um, so they've only held off just most recently. Officials opted to pause then with rates in a range of 5 to 5.25%, while at the same time signaling two more rate increases or more may be appropriate this year, as we've said. The Fed previously raised rates at a fast clip last year, including four consecutive three-quarter point hikes from near zero in March of 2022. Officials started slowing the pace in December and delivered 25 basis point hikes in each of the first three meetings of this year, um, et cetera, et cetera. In a subsequent Q&A, Powell said the economic outlook is particularly uncertain. And that's a big understatement. Uh, moving on from there, um, while overall inflation has cooled significantly from a peak of 9.1% a year ago, measures stripping out the more volatile and food and energy prices have come down much more slowly. Um, and there you have something interesting. You know, energy prices are very volatile anyway. And under Biden's policies, it's gotten even worse. Uh, you have a lot of weather affecting food supplies in the U.S. So um, uh, Fed measures, Fed uh, uh, monetary policy uh, oftentimes won't have much effect on those things. They're, they're naturally volatile. Uh, anyway, Powell said Thursday regulators are committing to learning lessons from the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and two other U.S. lenders, while the largest banks remain well capitalized and safe, and the size diversity of the country's banking system should be preserved. More may need to be done in overseeing mid-sized banks in the non-bank sector. And here's an important part. These events suggest a need to strengthen our supervision, the Fed's supervision and regulation of institutions around the size of Silicon Valley Bank. I look forward to evaluating proposals for such changes and implementing them where appropriate. So the Fed already is a privately owned and privately run central bank that does a lot of regulation of the economy. So now we see where the Fed's measures are going to actually increase the Fed's regulation of the economy. And in my opinion, that's going to just have the effect of squeezing smaller banks out and only preserving the larger banks. That's generally how it works. Um, anyway, uh, we, we're kind of getting toward the, the nitty gritty here. Um, the risks of doing too much or too little are not in balance yet, Powell said. It may be that we don't move for a meeting and then move at, a ne at the next meeting in terms of rate hikes. Uh, we see the effects, get this part, we see the effects of our policy tightening on demand in the most interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy, particularly housing and investment. <clears throat> and see, they're, again, they're very slow to admit or acknowledge that if you keep raising rates, and you say you're fighting inflation when, in fact, you oftentimes are causing it, the, the amount of economic activity is going to take a drastic nosedive. Uh, mortgages will not be lent. Therefore, houses will not be built. Therefore, housing materials will not be sold. Therefore, trees will not be milled in some cases, you might say. The entire economic chain is affected, Brian. And so, it, what I'm trying to do today is kind of unmask the Fed's deception and its oversights, um, the things it's overlooking, that is. And it's it's really misleading what's in the mainline press. I don't know if you have any quick comments or reflections, Brian. Uh, I'm going to have to say we need to we need to move on with the 
uh, segment, Mark, just to keep an eye on the clock? Yeah, of course. Um, anyway, um, another segue of this is should you open a CD before the next Fed rate hike? And there is something of a um, uh, minor advantage, you might say, uh, in the Fed's rate hikes. Uh, moving on from there, um, we see um, while higher rates make everything from credit cards to mortgage refinancing more expensive, and as I say, when you don't have mortgage refinancing or you don't initiate mortgages, a lot of economic activity doesn't happen. These rate hikes do have one benefit, higher rates on savings vehicles like high-yield savings and certificate of deposit accounts. So on the interest side, in terms of earning interest, there's a little bit of an advantage. But of course, that also benefits the banks. And uh, the latest data from the Fed itself, U.S. credit card debt is a record $988 billion. Moving on from there, uh, Americans continue to pile up credit card uh, debt, edging close to $1 trillion. And as far as I can tell, this is the highest thing on record ever since the Fed has been keeping records. Uh, we'll look at this here. Um, High inflation is certainly contributing to Americans' high credit card balances, along with record high interest rates. Uh, Ted Rossman, senior industry analyst at Bankrate, said more than a third of U.S. adults have credit card debt, more credit card debt than they do emergency savings, the highest we've seen uh, since we started tracking this in 2011. And so on top of the fact that the Fed's rate hikes will make the credit cards more expensive, we have at the same time Americans using credit cards more than ever. Credit card interest rates are also playing a role in the higher total debt, reaching record highs this year, uh, Rossman said. The average credit card APR recently soared to over 20%, higher than at any point since the Federal Reserve began tracking annual percentage rates back in 1994. And I think we're winding up here in the next slide. Um, although inflation is cooling, the price of housing, transportation, and some food items remain elevated. Uh, credit cards have become the go-to option for consumers as wage growth hasn't kept pace with inflation. And then from there, we have credit cards are not the only debt that has ballooned. Americans owe a total of $1.5 trillion in auto loans, $1.6 trillion in student debt, and the, the Supreme Court just ruled not to forgive most student debt. They're still going to have to pay it. And $12 trillion in home loans, according to the Fed's own data. So as the rate hikes go up and the interest rates attached to all these things go up, uh, as those rate hikes take effect in, in affecting housing and credit cards, Americans are literally being buried in debt, Brian. Um, and the Fed only seems to have one tool in its toolbox, and that's keep raising rates. And so you can see how many dimensions of this issue are not being reported so people can see the, the full outlook and effects. So there you go. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, the key question is Fed uh, friend or foe. I think they are foe, but we can talk more about that in, again in extra time. So I look forward to that. Let's move on to the subject of Ukraine. And of course, for the war in Ukraine, money is no problem. Uh, unlimited billions, whether it's dollars or 
or UK pounds. Uh, but something is going wrong. Let's have a look at some of the reporting that we've seen over the last year. I've chosen The Guardian here and Simon Disdall. Um, the awful truth is dawning. Putin may win in Ukraine. Now, that was the 24th of April, uh, 22. Uh, let's go on to this one. Putin is already at war with Europe. There is only one way to stop him. That's the 17th of July, 22. And if we come on to this uh uh, this part of that uh, particular article. The obvious escape route is a land for peace deal with Putin agreed over Ukraine's dead bodies. This kind of shoddy sellout has influential advocates. Uh, if Russia is returned to business as normal, it would alleviate Europe's suffering, though probably not Ukraine. So the callousness in this article, the Ukraine's dead bodies don't matter at all. Uh, if we try and stop the dead bodies accumulating. That's some sort of shoddy deal. Uh, but he goes on. Let's do a bit more. Yet such a deal would be a precedent setting disaster for future peace and security across the continent and globally too. Just think Taiwan or Estonia. It would uh, destroy the sovereign integrity of democratic Ukraine. Fortunately, he says, there is an alternative. Using NATO's overwhelming power to decisively turn the military tide. Now, remember, this was back in the summer last year. This man wants NATO to go to war with Russia. Utterly incredible. And uh, we'll do a bit more. This is August 22. Putin's apparently trapped and desperate. Will his friends in the West rescue him? These are all headline and major parts of articles that I'm putting up on screen. Um, Let's uh, bring this one up. Defeat for Ukraine would be a global disaster. NATO must finally step in to stop Russia. Um, so just remarkable. This man seems to be utterly confused in what's happening. Uh, one minute it's all going well, then um, it's better than well. Russia is, is clearly failing and going to lose. Then, oh dear, Russia is going to win. Why is he so confused? I'm going to suggest that he's so confused in his own logic because he believes the propaganda that the US, UK, NATO and EU are, and the Western media, of which he's part of putting out. And let's emphasise this and we'll go to uh, the Twitter part of the UK's Ministry of Defence. Here's their battlefield situation for the 10th of July. And um, what do we see on it? Well, basically, uh, there's a bit of deception going on here, because if you have a look at those hashed areas, uh, the contested areas, and you have a look at the scale of the map, it leads you to believe that the Ukrainians have taken back uh, significant uh, amounts of ground uh, penetrations of up to 12 miles, this would be, into the Russian lines. But you've got to look at the diagram a little bit more closely because the small print, which is top right on your screen at the moment, uh, it says this, warning, control and contested areas are for illustrative pur purposes only and should not be taken as being to scale. So they had to put that warning up, otherwise the deceit would become completely obvious. Um, but to most people, what's going on here is for the quick reader, they will pick up from the image that Ukraine is doing well when the opposite is true. And uh, we've also got the uh, 
lockdown on social media uh, channels that are trying to report what's going on. Now, we've mentioned this site before. There's some aspects of the reporting which are good, some which uh, I don't like so much. But the key point is that these reports appear to be targeted at the moment. So this account is temporarily restricted. But we need social media. Military summaries, one of the better channels, in my opinion. Uh, here they are showing that the Russians have retaken the island areas at the uh, uh, Dnipro Delta. So this is Kyrgyzstan part of the battlefield. Uh, the islands have dried out and the Russians have moved back in. Uh, on the Zaporizhia front, small repetitive Ukrainian armor and troop attacks repulsed with heavy Ukrainian casualties. This, of course, not being reported by the BBC, the West and the US at all. Here's the Avdivka front, very heavy uh, repetitive Ukrainian army and troop attacks, which have been repulsed again with heavy Ukrainian casualties. Uh, but the Russians have changed their tactics and they're now following up with counterattacks, which are increasing the Ukrainian casualties. Uh, what are those casualties? Well, of course, we don't know. Um, this is another Guardian article here, Russia-Ukraine war at a glance, what we know on day 502 of the invasion. But if you read the subheadline here, it says an investigation suggests Russia has lost 47,000 troops in Ukraine so far. That's killed. Uh, but of course, this report has come from uh, the Ukrainian authorities themselves. And uh, the Guardian, along with the BBC and other Western media, doesn't want to report what the uh, true horrors of the Ukrainian casualties are. We will just today ask the question, why not? And uh, we'll leave the, uh, the audience to think about that. Uh, but this is something else coming in. I'm going to talk about cluster bombs in a separate section. But here's the Guardian. End apparently justifies the means for Biden in sending cluster bombs to Ukraine. Uh, but if we have a look at a, a, sorry, a quote within this article, we get a key bit of information. Uh, the paragraph is it, and uh, this is the president talking about cluster bombs, was a very difficult decision on my part. And by the way, I discussed this with our allies. I discussed this with our friends up on Capitol Hill. The Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. So the reason that the cluster bombs have got to go in, or the shells in this case, are that the West, including the US, have run out of ammunition and the Russians consistently outgunning the Ukrainians. So some truth there in the Guardian report, but you've got to look for the detail. Well, if you like what the UK column is doing, please uh, join our community. That would uh, be wonderful. You can also help us by buying something from the UK column shop. Lots of good items. Uh, more interesting things will be coming up in uh, the coming weeks. Uh, but also do share our information because this is a key part of what we're doing, uh, which is to get this information out as far wide as possible. Now, a quick advert here because uh, some exciting things happening in Syria. If things are bad for the BBC in UK at the moment, uh, it's got very bad for them in Syria because the BBC has been kicked out. It says since the beginning of the terrorist war against Syria, the BBC has deliberately provided from time to time subjective and false information and reports on the Syrian reality. Although the channel was warned more than once, it continued to broadcast its misleading reports based on statements and testimonies from terrorist and anti-Syrian authority. 
as a result of the channel's failure to adhere to professional standards and its insistence on providing politicised and misleading reports to world opinion, the Ministry of Information decided the following, revoking the accreditation of the channel's correspondent and cameraman in Syria and uh, sorry, that's a, a repeat there effectively. So basically, they've revoked the accreditation of the BBC and their correspondent in Syria. And we're delighted to say that Vanessa Beely will be joining us Friday to talk about uh, this incident in detail. But the BBC now blocked uh, from its uh, offices in Syria. Um, interview coming out tomorrow at uh, 1pm where I interviewed Kim Isherwood from Public Child Protection Wales. This was a very uh, fiery update on what's been happening and what the uh, child protection team has, has been trying to do. And uh, we've also got this one, the Senate Cardiff Bay, uh, which is 11th of July. So tomorrow as well, 12 o'clock, you can actually join the, the public child protection gathering and uh, meet some of the people, but also show support for them. Right. Well, where does that take us? Uh, we've got judge sides with Florida in challenge to rules about books in schools. Uh, Mark, what have you got here? Interesting news. Many might say a turn in the right direction. A judge did side with the state of Florida and the uh, state of Florida has been wanting to create a systematic way for parents to know what their kids are reading in school whether it's in the campus library or in the classroom. And this is a big thing. The Florida uh, teachers unions, like pretty much all state teachers unions in the US, operate on the premise of in local parentis, in the place of the parents. A parental rights and oversight is discouraged, sometimes completely neglected altogether. A Florida judge this week sided with the state this is USA Today, in a challenge by the Florida Teachers Union over the rules that restrict what books and materials are available in the schools. The union and two other advocacy groups sued the state of Florida back in March, saying the way Florida interpreted a new law about school library books went further than the law intended, leading to censorship and book bans. But the judge ruled the other way. Moving on from there. Uh, the 2022 law by Florida requires districts to catalog every book on school shelves and create a formal review process for parental complaints. Some parents have asked for certain books to be removed from schools because of the new law, and lawsuits have emerged as a result. Uh, since early 2021, lawmakers in virtually every state in the U.S. have introduced hundreds of bills, get that, seeking to restrict learning. This is USA Today talking now to restrict learning and materials about controversial topics. Some of the legislation has focused on giving parents more access to and authority over curriculum. There again, there's that process, there's that premise built in that parents need to be given authority when um, in, in the American system, having authority over, over one's children is a God given thing. And so uh, that's kind of the, the basic uh, schematic of what's going on. Now we have a video by a Miss Wong. Hopefully she doesn't get her arguments Wong. I can't, <laughs> I can't resist that quip. But at any rate, uh, this video I believe we have up explains 
the uh, you might say the liberal side of the equation and USA Today's very limited perspective on this. Books are being challenged at an unprecedented rate this school year. These efforts are being driven uh, mostly by conservative politicians uh, with the help of parents who've organized in a grassroots fashion uh, to get certain titles removed. A high profile recent example involved the graphic novel Mouse, and that's about the Holocaust. Another aspect that's different about this wave is the focus on libraries. You know, book banning efforts have often focused on curriculum, but lately they've extended to entire library collections, which observers say makes the trend particularly egregious because they're not just attacking what's required um, as part of curriculum, they're, they're seeking to limit optional access. Almost all of the frequently targeted books deal with race, gender, or sexuality, and recent challenges have tended to focus on newer titles that explore the intersection between all three. And many contain sexually explicit scenes and swear words, and they often deal with heavy themes like rape and, and death and coming out. And, you know, for many children, literature can provide a community and a safe haven. And that's particularly true of literature whose perspectives have often been excluded from traditional narratives. Um, there is an interesting uh, initiative underway to distribute copies of Mouse and Beloved to frequently banned books in schools in both Texas and Virginia. So there are some initiatives underway to fill the gaps that these bans or challenges create. And yeah, interesting. You'll, you'll notice how everything she says uh, treats what parents want or what parents are concerned about with total and utter disregard. The book Mouse that they say is about the Holocaust, you'll notice there's no investigation as to what particularly is in the book that parents might have objected to. See, so you don't really get a look at why parents would, uh, some parents at least, would object to that book or other books. Um, note, uh, we're kind of winding up here at issue books in classrooms versus school libraries. The union and advocacy groups took issue with the state's expansive application of the law which addresses materials contained in a school library media center. The Florida Department of Ed, they argued, improperly interpreted that to include collections in classrooms, not just those in the campus libraries. The Florida Union said it had led teachers to covering up classroom bookshelves or emptying them out and uh, going on from there. Uh, there's victory acknowledged here on the conservative side of the ledger, however. Read it and weep, tweeted, Florida Education Commissioner Manny Diaz Jr. It's sad to see the Florida Teachers Union waste their members' hard-earned money on a frivolous lawsuit against the state to block parents from knowing what their children are reading in classrooms. Heaven forbid, right? Today's ruling is a major win for Florida parents and classroom transparency, his tweet continued. And in May, Florida's State Board of Ed voted to require state officials to publish an annual list of library books and instructional materials that have drawn public objections. So by all accounts, Florida is trying to make everything transparent. And those that believe that uh, kids at any age can read just any material without any concerns about their development or the appropriateness uh, of the material. Um, you know, they're finally being pushed back on their heels and uh, parental rights, which are a natural born thing, are finally being recognized in Florida. So this is all, all in all a good development. OK, Mark, thank you very much for that report. It is a good development, but we still have problems. David. Well, we go now to the festival of uh, love and hope that is the Pride March in London. Uh, 
a little speech. I was going to come here and be really fluffy and be really nice and say, yeah, be really lovely and queer and gay. Nah, if you see a turf, punch him in the f face. So um, that was um, the crowd reacting very positively to a call for violence against TERFs. Uh, they're referring here to what they call trans-exclusionary radical feminists or women who don't buy the trans ideology. Um, the person speaking was uh, Alan Baker, uh, now known as Sarah Jane Baker. Um, and as you see from this Telegraph article, um, they served, she served, he served, whatever. Uh, 30 years for kidnapping and attempted murder. What was he when he, when he did these crimes? Um, and um, is now a trans activist uh, who, behalf, who campaigns on behalf of trans prisoners. Um, so this was a statement that was made, openly aggressive, calling for violence. The reaction has been very interesting. A London trans pride spokesman said, say that many others in our community hold a lot of rage and anger. They have the right to express that anger through their words. We do not condone violence. We do not back a call uh, to arms for violence of any kind. We do not, sorry, we do condone righteous anger and the right to free speech. That, and that was expressed yesterday. And we will continue to march in peace. So uh, publicly calling to smash people in the face if they don't agree with your political views is righteous anger now. Okay, you heard it here. And only this particular group could get away with that. Anyone else, the police would be involved, would be arrested. Um, but in this particular case, there's a whole lot of political support. So we see it here from Sadiq Khan, uh, who says it's never been more important to support trans people who are being stigmatised and placed at the heart of a toxic culture war. As your mayor, I will always be on your side. So he's clearly taking sides in favour of smashing people in the face. Um, the person, um, uh, Alan Baker, uh, and or Sarah Jane Baker, who, who said this, uh, later tweeted out that uh, they were in beautiful queer Manchester. Uh, thank you to the Met Police for unwavering support. So you can you can go on a public stage and uh, encourage people to commit violence and have the unwavering support of the Met Police. So that's, that's interesting. Now, uh, Clive Lewis MP commented on this. He said, advocating violence against others is wrong, and this is no exception. Good. But as you, but, there's always a but, isn't there? But as you'll be aware, violent language and actions are not unique to one side on this issue. That doesn't justify the above in any way, but it does require we acknowledge the general toxicity and step back from it. To which Professor Alice Sullivan said, uh, there are simply no examples of feminists issuing these kinds of violent threats every time women organise to discuss our rights we are faced with abuse. It shouldn't be hard to condemn that condemn that unequivocally. And, and she's, she's very right. I mean, I've witnessed this, many people have witnessed this in, 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 in person, that when women are meeting to discuss significant issues uh, that affect them, then they're, they're hounded, threatened, faced with, with abuse. It's, I, I wouldn't quite say it's, she's right to characterise it as male violence, because of course most men would entirely support women's stance on things like women-only spaces. Um, it's more of an ideological matter, um, but what she's facing, what she's uh, expressing here is real, that, uh, that it's not uh, violence and, 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 and angry words from both sides in a similar 
in a similar vein. It's very much directed against the women. Uh, just to finish this piece, we've got Ivor Cummins here um, quoting atheist Tom Holland. Uh, he said, um, talking about the huge improvement in society and particularly in the place of women in society, he said, how did we get here? It was Christianity. Christianity revolutionized sex and marriage, demanding men control themselves and prohibiting all forms of rape. Christianity confined sexuality within monogamy. It's ironic that this, these are now the very stand, standards for which Christianity is derided. And the reason I finish on that is the whole trans ideology and the uh, queer theory that underpins it is a, is a contrary religion. It's an alternative religion. It's trying to replace Christianity. It's trying to push against anything that forms um, the, the core of Christian values. And it must be viewed as such. It's a religion. And what we're seeing here is someone trying to drive out what they see as heretics, um, and they want to use violence to control heretics. That's what we're seeing. We should recognise it for what it is, and we should resist it. Yeah, thank you, David. It's a, a very troubling subject and troubling to see this sort of stuff happening in public, violence. Um, well, of course, violence is uh, loved on the world stage. And I'm going to come back onto the subject of those cluster uh, munitions, cluster bombs, as most people are referring to them. Over the weekend, Rishi Sunak decided that he had to come out and... Uh, and make the statement that Britain discourages the use of cluster munitions. Um, this is, of course, after Joe Biden had agreed to send the bombs to Ukraine. And as I've just explained in today's news, this is not for the bombs themselves. It's because the US has run out of other ammunition and they still have uh, these bomblet shells available. So they are shipping them to Ukraine. Um, the Prime Minister highlighted on Saturday uh, that the UK was one of 123 signatories of a convention banning their use after the US president made the so-called difficult decision. Uh, well, I'll just show you here. This is the Convention on Cluster Munitions, and you can see from the purpley areas the countries that have signed up. Uh, they do not agree with the use of these, but we can see here very clearly that the US has not signed up. Um, this is some of the detail. The convention was adopted in Dublin by 107 states on the 30th of May 2008 and signed in Oslo on the 3rd of December the same year. The convention became binding international law when it entered into force on the 1st of August 2010. And to date, a total of 123 states have joined the convention. So that's the detail of it. This is a little summary document you can find on the site, which gives information about the UK's commitment. Uh, so it says that the UK has completed destruction of its cluster munition stockpiles in December 2013. It doesn't have any contamination in areas under its jurisdiction or control, and it doesn't have cluster munition victims. That's because we've been part of the team uh, putting the weapons out there. Uh, we certainly don't get affected by our own munitions. Um, but if we just highlight this bit, this particular statement is talking about mining, and the UK is crowing here that they're helping a number of countries in the world with mining problems. Ukraine is part of that. 
Uh, but of course, is the UK saying anything about Ukraine's use of mines and remote mining at the moment? No, it's complete silence. Now, I do understand that the Russians are also um, using mines. Uh, but my point here is the hypocrisy of the UK at the moment in that uh, they are not going to take any action to adhere um, to this commitment where Ukraine is concerned. Uh, this is uh, part of one of the workshops and it's uh, showing the people involved. This shows you that uh, within the Commonwealth, there's a lot of commitment uh, to the movement against uh, cluster munitions and mines. Uh, if I put in a bit of the text, the workshop took place on March the 2nd, 2023, Queen Elizabeth uh, Centre in London, England. It was The workshop was organised by the Implementation Support Unit and sponsored by the government of the United Kingdom in its role as president of the 10th meeting of states. So pretty difficult for UK uh, to get round to that. This is the statement by uh, Aidan Liddell, the UK ambassador and permanent rep to the UK, UN conference on disarmament in Geneva. He said he's excited to be joining the UK mission in Geneva as the permanent representative to the conference. Uh, disarmament, arms control and non-proliferation are some of the biggest challenges we face and I look forward to playing my part. Uh, Anna Sherburn here, Head of Countering Violent Extremism and Governments and Peace Directorate within the Commonwealth said it's timely to discuss the universalisation of the convention as it was in line with the recently announced theme of Commonwealth Day 2023, forging a sustainable and peaceful common future. And against that background, we'll just bring in just some of the weapon systems that UK has pumped into Ukraine. So we've got Storm Shadow missiles, brimstone missiles, uh, rocket systems, high miles, the air defence systems, tanks, drones, all being pumped in in order to keep the war going to the West's entire satisfaction. Uh, satisfaction. And of course, mines are being used aplenty by both sides in the war that uh, UK and the West doesn't want to stop. Uh, David, um, you've got some comments here about RAF Scampton. Well, yes, there's been an arrest. We've got some video of that in a moment. An arrest at RAF Scampton. Uh, there's been protests um, both for and against the uh, use of RAF Scampton as an asylum centre. Um, and uh, we have a video of the one man who was arrested. So what we had here was um, the, the there was protesters against the use of this space as an asylum centre. They were uh, bar verbally abused um, by counter protesters who were basically they are called them Nazis. Um, the police weren't very sympathetic and kept um, basically moving on the, the, uh, the protesters against the immigration centre. Uh, one man eventually, having been shoved and pushed by the police quite a lot, um, called one of them a name uh, and was arrested. Um, and the, the ridiculous claim later was that the police felt that a member of the public may have been offended by that name. So he was just arrested because he annoyed the policeman and you must respect my authority.
Um, the BBC report here continues. Uh, Michael Hancock from the Lincoln TUC said their demonstration alongside Stand Up to Racism uh, was a counter-protest to the far-right National Support Detachment, also known as Enough is Enough. Um, he, he told he told this organisation, neither of us actually want RAF Scampton to be housing asylum seekers, but the reasons are different. So they actually agree, but we're fighting, we're arguing. We're saying Lincoln says Nazis aren't welcome, but refugees are. Now, this is, this is the issue that if you're calling people who are protesting against asylum, the, the, the huge number of immigrants coming into the country, which is a legitimate concern, whether you agree with it or not, it's a legitimate concern. If people in the TUC and political world are just going to call them Nazis and the police are going to treat them as those are Nazis, there's, there's eventually going to be a reaction against this sort of brutalisation of, of a mainstream of opinion within society. And of course, none of this is addressing any of the issues that the people are out protesting about, which is the change to the country that the, the huge levels of immigration is causing. Uh, the BBC here... Um, uh, it continues with the Home Office's position, which is that these sites are more affordable for taxpayers, more manageable for communities due to healthcare and catering facilities on site, 24-7 security and purpose-built safe and secure accommodation. So we, we've put the asylum seekers into all the hotels in the country, into all the communities. That's not working. We're now putting them into camps. None of this is getting at the core problem, which is the immigration policy itself. Yes, and uh, surplus mod property, although we're being told that, of course, our military at the moment is ins uh, insufficient to fight any, any substantial wars overseas. So it's just fascinating to watch these two alternative uh, policies come to the fore. Um, but you're going to end uh, for us here, David, with um, plans for uh, what's described as an 8,000-acre playground for the rich in Scotland. Yes, this is how the Nationals perceiving it anyway, and they, they may have a point. So this is Taymouth Castle. Uh, Brian, you know this area because I took you to uh, a wonderful little pub once in uh, Kenmore, the village nearby. Uh, Taymouth Castle, as you see, is a, is a fine uh, example of uh, Scottish baronial architecture. In fact, one of the finest. Uh, we have here in the next photograph an, in, an interior shot, and you'll see just how grand it actually is. Now, it's been in uh, falling into disrepair for many years, there's a lot of problems with dry rot. There's a requirement for a huge maintenance bill, and no one would take it on. Well, now there is plans to uh, renovate it, and I think that renovation is actually underway. And to construct, as the national reports, a private community over two parcels of land, Teamouth Castle and uh, an area in Glen Lyon. Uh, this is uh, from an organisation known as DLC Clubs. Um, uh, it's an American organisation and they sell land to prospective members who build their own properties within its boundaries. Um, it's very, very high cost uh, and very exclusive. Uh, the average price to build a house at Discovery Club is $4 million, can cost up to $22 million. So we're talking about uh, you know, essentially a, a very exclusive gated community. Um, so this uh, prompted... Um, uh, Andy Whiteman, former M MSP, to start digging into who actually owns all of this. And they, what he found was it was no means, by no means clear. There was a huge uh, range of companies uh, going through many uh, levels of control in many different jurisdictions and nations. 
Um, so he, he traced it back to uh, companies in Luxembourg and, and, and in London uh, without ever really formally establishing too much about who's actually behind all of this. Um, 7,000 acre Glen Lyon estate is owned by Kenmore Hospitality, which is controlled uh, by PLH in the Highlands UK Limited, which is controlled in turn by an American billionaire uh, who runs JP's Peace and Love and Happiness Foundation, and we've got a little example of that. So you've got you've got tax exempt foundations from the United States cropping up in in Scotland uh, to buy up parcels of land and 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 beautiful ancient assets, albeit in some distress, um, and bring in massive amounts of uh, of funds um, to transform it into presumably some sort of Disney version of the Highlands. We're not quite clear as to what's planned yet. Um, and um, I would point out that this is, all made, this is all made possible by the whole financial system and the funny money system and the money creation system, which means that um, actual real hard assets can be hoovered up because a lot of money has been created and, it, and the people who get it first get the benefit. Um, and the pushback, the political pushback against this from the likes of Mike Russell is to look for communism to save us. Another strong argument, he says, for radical limits on individual ownership, so an attack on property rights. So the abuse on one hand of the monetary system, the, the, the easy money policies, um, is producing a reaction on the other hand, which is attacking private property rights, the basis for economic success and freedom. Um, and uh, promoting essentially a, a form of communism. So we, we really don't want these extremes, um, but it is an interesting story, and it's one that we will follow to see if we can get more information on exactly who is buying up chunks of Scotland and uh, where the money is in fact coming from. Okay, David, thank you for that. I don't get a particularly warm feeling about that sort of development or the people who would then enter it, but we'll have a discussion on that another time. Uh, just wanted to do end with this young lovely. Um, uh, who is this? The lady in pink, or is it? Uh, this is uh, Ricky Colley. Uh, she was crowned Miss Netherlands 2023 uh, on July the 8th at the Theatre in Lowesden. And um, she'll be the second transgender representative um, at the Miss Universe pageant next to Spain's Angela Ponce, who participated in 2018. Um, so is it a woman? We're not sure. Well, she thinks she is. He, he thinks she is. Um, but uh, it's interesting that the Dutch government has fallen around about the same time. I don't know if there's any connection between the two. We'll leave it there. David, uh, Mark and uh, Dr. Bruce Scott, thank you very much for joining us. Um, that is it for UK Column News today. Thank you to all the viewers worldwide. We do appreciate you and, of course, your support for the UK Column. And if you're a member of UK Column, we will have extra in just a few minutes. So stay with us. Thanks. Bye-bye.